seated. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. I will never forget waking up one morning while I was in elementary school. My parents woke me up. They called me and my sister to the kitchen. And they said, we got a surprise for you. And I thought, this is amazing. I cannot wait to see what this surprise was. While rubbing the sleep out of my eyes and slowly waking up, because I was not a morning person, nor am I a morning person now, I looked down at a box of donuts. You know that box, the pink box that every donut place uses except for Krispy Kremes? I looked down at the box, and I thought, we got donuts. This wasn't a regular occurrence at our house. I was so excited. We have donuts for breakfast. Hooray. I love donuts. And I've obviously passed that on to my children, because if you've ever seen them at the donut table, (laughs) one donut becomes 35 donuts later. So if there are none left over, I apologize. It's because of my children. So I looked at the donut box, and my parents stood behind it, and they began to open it. And I was looking forward to eating my favorite chocolate donut. And as they opened it up, on the inside, there was a note. And the note said, surprise, we're going to Disneyland. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet, but I really want my donut. (laughs) (laughs) So we ate our donuts as we went down to Disneyland. Everybody loves a good surprise. Everybody loves a good twist. Everybody loves something that shifts from one expectation to another. Whether it's a movie and an amazing surprise ending or a twist that changes the plot that makes us all go, oh my word, I I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. Whether it's a a trick play in a, a football game where a defense is completely fooled because of the offense uh, mastering a, a trick play. Whether it's birthdays or parties Surprise parties. We love twists and turns. We love things that just catch us off guard and give us something amazing. This morning, I want us to look at three surprising twists and turns in the Passion Week narrative. I love the Passion Week, and I know that you do as well. And as we are here at Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus is going to be killed on a Friday and then raised from the dead on the following Sunday. The Passion Week is the most important week in our lives as believers, in Jesus' life here on earth, and in all of human history. And this morning, I want us to look at three surprising twists and turns, going places that we wouldn't expect these people to do what they're doing and how they end up working. And I want to learn lessons from these three surprising twists and turns as we go through the text. So before we dive in, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and then we will look at these three narrative texts that would give us amazing, significant shifts in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus on that last week. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing that there is even such a thing as the Passion Week. What a privilege to have four gospel accounts give us such detailed information. Far more than half 
of all of the gospel records that we have spend their account on this incredible week. This is a very important week. So as we come together, we want to take care to look at these moments, these last days of our Savior's life on earth and see the profound impact that they would have for us. And God, may we do everything that we do as we stare at your word this morning and as we stare at the gospel accounts. May we do everything that we do to glorify Jesus, to see him clearly revealed, to stand in awe of his character and to worship him. We don't want to just learn things. We want to worship Jesus. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to give us the ability to do that this morning as we dive into this week. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The first surprising twist that we see in the Passion Week narrative, and there's many of them, uh, these, these moments are absolutely incredible in the life of our Savior. I said it in Sunday school this morning. If I had a time machine and I could go back anywhere in time, I would go back to the triumphal entry and just live out this week with our Savior. If I could only go back to one day and stay there for one day and then leave, I'd go to Tuesday of the Passion Week, which we'll look at a little bit this morning. But the accounts that we see in the gospel records, uh, the gospel, if if our Lord's life was 33 years long, and it was probably around there, We have a a little bit in the beginning of Jesus' birth. We have a little bit of when he was a little bit older. And then we have just nothing in in his adolescence or in his adult life. It's just silent until he turns 30. And then we have a good amount on that information on those years of his life. And then we have an enormous amount of ink spilled on one week Why just one week? Because this is the most important week in all of human history. An enormous, enormous amount of ink spilled. So let's look at just three. We're not going to be able to look at all of these amazing shifts. But the first shift that we see is in the religious leaders. You can write down religious leaders. Now, they began trying to get the crowds on their side. They don't like Jesus, and they know that the crowds love Jesus, and they want to get rid of Jesus, but they're afraid of the crowds. So plan A is let's get the crowds on our side to to hate Jesus, to think he's a fool, to not follow him, and our problem's gone. We don't have to kill him. We don't have to do anything crazy. Let's just get the crowds to love us again because we've lost their love and affection And then let's get them to turn on Jesus and we'll be okay. That was plan A. And because that was their plan, they set in motion a strategic uh, ploy, if you will, trying to trap Jesus in statements that he was making. So triumphal entry happens on Sunday. Uh, Cleansing the temple happens on Monday. He he overturns the money changers, the, the animal sellers. He gets them all out. He controls the whole temple mount, which was in control of the, the Sadducees, owned it. And so the Sadducees were not very happy when Jesus did that. And so the Sadducees say on Tuesday of the Passion Week, and if you're in Mark chapter 11, you can see the first question that they ask in verse 27. They show up, they say to Jesus, as he's walking in the temple, by what authority, verse 28, are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? 
Who allowed you to come into our house, knock everything over, destroy our commerce? We talked about this in Sunday school. Destroy everything that we look forward to on this one day a year or this one week a year to make lots of money. Who gave you the authority? And you remember Jesus' answer, right? You can see it there, but his answer is, I'm going to ask you a question first. You answer my question, and then I'll answer your question. So already, as the crowds are watching everything that's happening, we, we tend to think that they just talked to Jesus in private. No, the crowds are watching. They're wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus says to them, here's my question. By what authority did John the Baptist come? Who gave him the power? Who gave him the authority to show up and to be who he was? Did he become famous because men just thought he was a prophet, but he wasn't really a prophet? Or did he become famous in his work as a prophet because he really was a prophet sent by God? Which was it? And he gives that question to the Sadducees. And they huddle up and they say, well, if we say that he wasn't really a prophet, he was just made famous by men, then the crowds are going to turn on us because the crowds know that he's a prophet. They absolutely loved him. So if we say that he wasn't really a prophet, he just got famous because he was kind of crazy and, and the crowds were going to lose them. But if we say he was a man sent by God, he really was a prophet, then Jesus is just going to turn right around and say, well, then why don't you believe what he said about me? He said, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, I am the Messiah. So either way, they're trapped. They wanted to trap Jesus, and their trap just springs and flies in their own face. And so Jesus says, verse 33, after they answer, we don't know. They know, but they say, we don't know. We lost this one. Round one goes to Jesus. Jesus says, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he leaves. And the crowds love him. They're applauding him. This is amazing. So the Sadducees say, we lost. Pharisees, can you do this? Drop down to verse 13 of chapter 12. The Pharisees show up and they ask a great question. The Pharisees and the Herodians show up and they're trying to trap Jesus, right? You can see it in verse 13, in order to trap him in a statement. So how can we trap him? How can we get the crowds to think he's an idiot, jump back on our bandwagon, and we finally, once and for all, can get rid of Jesus? And they know the expectation of the crowds is that Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is supposed to come and overthrow Rome. They love Jesus because they think Jesus is going to be able to get rid of Caesar. So let's ask a question that forces Jesus to say, Caesar's not that bad. And so they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You can see it there. Verse 14, they come, they say, teacher. They don't really believe he's a good rabbi, but they ask him that. They know the crowds love him. We know that you're truthful. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. That's all to butter up the crowds. They don't care about Jesus. They want the crowds to, to think, yes, the, the Pharisees even love Jesus. This is good. And then they say, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay taxes to him or not? This is an ingenious question because if Jesus says, no, don't pay, then they can say, you're breaking the law. And crowds, you shouldn't follow this God, godless lawbreaker. But if Jesus says we should pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees expect that Jesus will hear from the crowds their displeasure of him now turning against Israel and saying Caesar is king. He says, why are you testing me? Verse 15, he knows their hypocrisy. 
Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? Or image and likeness. Likeness and image. We were made in the image and likeness of God. This coin is made in the image and likeness of Caesar. And Jesus said, they say, uh, it's Caesar's. That's Caesar, verse 16. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And they were all amazed. So not only do the Pharisees walk away saying, man, we missed again. Round two goes to Jesus. But they also look and they see we've lost the crowd even more. The crowd even more loves them. And over a very sticky issue, dealing with Caesar and dealing with Rome. They're thinking, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to trap him. Sadducees, your turn. We tap out Sadducees' turn. Verse 18, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection come to Jesus, and they question him. And you remember this question? They say, Jesus, there's a, a woman who has a husband. The husband dies. The brother marries her. The husband dies. The brother marries her seven times. So we've got seven guys that marry this one woman. Uh, I think if I'm like third or fourth brother in line, I'm not signing up to marry this woman because apparently she kills all of her husbands. <laughs> Maybe it's bad cooking or something, but I'm not in line to, to, to marry this woman. But seven men marry this woman over the course of their lifetime, over her lifetime, and they all go to heaven. Who is she married to in the resurrection, in the afterlife? She had seven husbands. Who is she married to? Drop down to Jesus' answer. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are mistaken? That's a great way to start, by the way. Uh, before I answer your question, let me just tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong. And here, I know why you're wrong. Because you don't understand the scriptures. These people are experts in the law. And they don't, he, Jesus says, you don't even understand the law. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't even know the power of God. You have no power because you hold to a form of religion, but you deny its power, like Paul tells us. For when they rise, verse 25, here's the answer. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. So, no, they're not married in heaven. Nobody's married in heaven. Well, actually, we are all married in heaven. We're all married to Jesus in heaven, but none of us are married to each other. No humans are married to each other. So he just says it very clearly. Let me answer your question. It's an easy one. Nobody's married in heaven uh, to each other. We're all married to Jesus. Verse 26, but let me answer the question that you didn't even ask. And it's in that parenthetical statement in verse 18. They said there's no resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. Jesus knows this, so he knows the stupidity of their question because they're asking a question about something they don't even believe in. Who is she going to be married to in the afterlife? Which, by the way, we don't believe in. So Jesus says, but regarding the fact, verse 26, that the dead rise again. Notice his words. Regarding the fact. I know you guys don't believe it, but it's true nonetheless. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then he ends by saying, you are greatly mistaken. You're greatly mistaken. I, lo I love this verse for so many reasons. I love it because it tells us the precision of the scriptures. Jesus proves there's an afterlife by the tense of a verb, right? He says, God is not, was not the God of Abraham. He doesn't say, I was their God, but now I'm not because they're dead. He says, I am their God. Even though they're long gone, they're dead, 
Uh, this is the book of Exodus that Jesus is going back to with the story of the burning bush. Uh, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long gone. They're dead in Genesis. And so Jesus says, from the burning bush, the Father stated, I'm still their God. They're still very much alive. And that proves there's an afterlife. I, I love this because it also tells us not only the tense of a verb is important, so every single tense of every verb in the Bible is very important. That's why we go word by word through the Bible. I love this also because it shows us how gracious Jesus is to speak to people on their terms. The reason why he goes back to the burning bush, I, I wouldn't have gone there. I mean, it, it, think if somebody asks you, can you prove to me in the Bible that there's a resurrection from the dead, that there's an afterlife? Can you prove that to me? First place that doesn't pop up in our minds is burning bush, right? We don't typically think, oh, I know exactly where I can prove that, burning bush. Why does Jesus go there? He goes there because the Sadducees did not believe that any other book other than the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they didn't believe anything else was scripture. Nothing else is inspired by God. These five books, those are God's word. So Jesus says, okay, you're wrong, but I'll still go with that. And I'll prove to you from one of your books that you declare is God's word. I'll prove from you, for you from those books that there's an afterlife. I love his graciousness of jumping into their world, even though they're dead wrong. And then I love his truthfulness. He says at the end, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. He started by saying you're wrong, and now he says you're dead wrong. And because of that, one scribe comes up, verse 28, and asks a genuine question. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, you remember that? Love God, love people. But then nobody wants to answer anything, or nobody wants to ask a question ever again after that. Plan A for the religious leaders was get the crowds on our side, and we can get rid of Jesus. But plan A has failed. And so now the twist happens, and you can see it in chapter 14. A strange shift, a twist happens, moving from plan A, which began on Monday night of the Passion Week. Let's get the crowds on our side. And they spend all of Monday night trying to figure out what questions we'll ask. They spend all of Tuesday asking, and they realize Tuesday night, we have to change to plan B. And plan B, chapter 14, verse 1, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him because they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. We've lost the people. And so plan A to try and win them back, that's failed. Let's change this. Plan B Let's take Jesus when he's away from the people, which the next time that would be, the most opportune time that would be from Tuesday night of the Passion Week is Thursday night when they're all taking Passover. That'll be the next time when Jesus will be as alone as possible. And that's why they plan, that's when we're going to get him. It changes. Their plan changes from plan A, let's get the crowds on our side, to plan B, let's kill Jesus, take him by stealth when nobody else is around and kill him many lessons to learn from this interesting and significant shift. But let me give you just two lessons to learn from this twist. The first is the message of Jesus is offensive to religious people. The message of Jesus is an offensive message to religious people. These people want him dead. They don't just say, well, I'll keep teaching, but I don't think it's right. They want him dead. Why? 
Because the message of Jesus says there is nothing you can do to be right before God on your own. Religious leaders thought we're good, right? They thought, number one, we're Jewish people, so we're God's chosen people. Number two, we keep the law, we do good things, so God's going to welcome us into heaven. And Jesus shows up and says, you need to repent. You are workers of iniquity. You're workers of lawlessness. And they say, well, we haven't done anything wrong. The gospel is an offensive message because it says, before salvation can come, you must understand that you're desperately in need of it. You must understand you cannot do anything to get to God. And religious people, every single religious person, and I'm using that term in quotes, right? Religion says you can make up a system to get to God by doing something on your own. Gospel says Jesus has to do it all. That's very offensive to a religious person. The second message, the second lesson that we can learn from this first shift, not only that the message of Jesus is offensive to religious people, but number two, you cannot be indifferent about the claims of Jesus. You can't be indifferent with Jesus. If you know him, if you hear his words, if you understand his message, you cannot say, "Mm, no big deal. Either you will worship or you will go to war, but you cannot remain indifferent to him. If you truly understand his message, it will either drive you to worship him or like the religious leaders, drive you to fight against him and get him out of the picture. His message is offensive to religious people and you cannot be indifferent to him. So many other lessons we can learn from the religious leaders over the course of this uh, Passion Week narrative. Amazing lessons, some which we've learned in the past. Let's move on to number two. The second shift is with the devil. So we have the religious leaders and then we have a shift with the devil and his tactics. The religious leaders shifted from plan A to plan B. The devil is going to do the exact same thing. The devil, from the beginning, go to Matthew chapter 16, because I think Matthew 16 will show this to us. But from the beginning, the devil's desire, once he fell and was in the garden with Adam and Eve, his desire was to pull humanity away from God. And then when... He makes Adam and Eve fall into sin. When they, he tempts them and they willingly do that, God brings the curse and the fall upon all of humanity. And you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he pronounces the gospel to Eve and to Adam and to the devil that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. You remember that? So ever since that proclamation by God, The devil has been on a mission to try and get rid of the seed of the woman. Try and get rid of the seed of the woman. Try and move the the seed of the woman out of the picture because if we can get the seed of the woman to be gone, then we can absolutely destroy the promise that's given to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He starts by just trying to kill people. I mean, Genesis chapter 4, the plan is implemented, right? Cain and Abel. Let's start killing people. The devil's trying to get rid of humanity because if humanity's gone, there can be no seed to bring about the promise in Genesis 3.15. So let's try and kill humanity. Well, kind of starts working, but then doesn't work because we have a plethora of people that start growing and the seed of the woman just expands. It's not going to ultimately go away. So let's change that a little bit. Let's just get them to be so evil that God kills them all right now. That's Genesis chapter 6, right? 
Everybody's doing so much evil continually that God's going to have to wipe them out. And in there as well, remember the Nephilim, one of those crazy theological questions, what's going on with those people? What's going on with those people is that is exactly the devil's plan. If I can't get all of humanity to fight against God and to be evil, then let's intermix uh, demonic influence with humanity. And so these, these people start being born as demons are having sexual relations with women. These, these demons are propagating a new race of people, a new lineage of people. All because of the devil's plan to try and get rid of the seed of the woman. And that's why God graciously says, let's start over here. And wipes out all the evil people, wipes out all the Nephilim, and then gives us Noah and a lineage from Noah. Revelation chapter 12 says that the devil was always wanting to kill off the woman, to kill off Israel. Tries to do that through Haman. You remember in Esther? Let's just kill all the Jews, Haman says. That's from the devil. Because if we can kill all the Jews, then we cannot have a Jewish Messiah. And if we don't have a Jewish Messiah, Genesis 3.15 won't work. It doesn't work with Haman. The devil tried to do it in the book of Judges, right? If we can kill off Benjamin, if we can kill off one tribe from Benjamin, uh, one tribe from the 12 tribes of Israel, then we break the promises of God that these 12 people, will, they will never be removed from the face of the earth, and we've destroyed the promise. This is what the devil's trying to do constantly, just break off these avenues for the promises of God to be delivered. And then when Jesus is born, Revelation 12 says that, okay, I failed in trying to kill Israel, the devil says, so I got to kill that baby. And he tries to do that through Herod. Remember, Herod kills all the babies. The devil wants Jesus dead. But that's not going to work. So, Matthew 16, the devil says, let's change Jesus' direction. He's headed to the cross. Let's not get him to the cross. Because if I can keep Jesus from going to the cross, then I can keep humanity from being redeemed. And you remember this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. He's asking them, uh, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father revealed this to you. And then the very next section, drop down to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is the first time that he's told his disciples he needs to die. He's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. That will never happen to you. But he turns around and he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to tempt Jesus to not go to the cross. No, 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 you're not going to die. Don't go to the cross. He had done this in the wilderness, right? In the temptations, Matthew chapter 4. Just break out of the kenosis. Turn stones into bread. There's nothing immoral about turning rocks into bread. The reason why Satan tempts Jesus to do that is if Jesus were to all of a sudden just zap, turn the stones into bread, he would break outside of the limitations that he put upon himself by becoming a human. He would cease to be our perfect substitute. He would be playing the God card when you and I have no ability to do that. 
And so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm living inside the limitations that I've taken to myself. Father, am I allowed to do this through the power of the Spirit? No, then I'm not doing it. Satan is constantly trying to tempt Jesus to get him away from the cross. But if you go to Luke chapter 22, this is where the shift happens. And this is a very interesting shift. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Satan, this is on Thursday night, or this is actually Tuesday night, and it's going to happen again on Thursday night. Verse 3, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. Satan's tactic has been, let's not have Jesus go to the cross. Let's get Jesus away from the cross. Let's move him away from the cross. And now Satan indwells Judas to get Jesus crucified. Why this shift? This seems a very strange tactic. I think the answer can be seen if we keep reading. Go all the way down to chapter 53 of Luke 22. Or verse 53 of Luke 22. This is Jesus in the garden when the religious leaders are there to take Jesus away and start his six trials. Jesus says in verse 53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but... This hour literally is yours. This is your hour. And this is the hour of the power of darkness. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you're going to get to do whatever you want to do to me. This is your hour, not a specific span of 60 minutes. But this is your time. And you're going to get to do whatever you want to do to me. And this is also the power of darkness's time. And Satan and his angels or demons get to do whatever they want to do to me. If you remember in Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, this is the same language that God says to Satan when he's trying to destroy Job. Satan says, I want to get rid of him. I want to kill him. I want to take everything away and kill him. And God says, no, you can't, you can't kill him. But everything else is in your power to do. You can do whatever you want to him, just don't kill him. That exact same statement, I believe the Father gave to Satan about Jesus. You can't kill him, but you can do whatever you want to do to him. You can do whatever you want to do to him. Satan, this is your hour. Do your worst. Anything you want, all that you can throw at Jesus, this is your hour. Now, to see the severity of that statement, for sake of time, we're not going to go there. Matthew chapter 26, in the garden, Jesus says when he's being betrayed, I could call down. You remember Peter strikes somebody with the sword and his ear gets lopped off. Jesus says, I could call on the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels. He'd send 12 legions of angels. I have them at my disposal right now. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. So 12 legions would be at least 72,000 angels. It's one thing to be overwhelmed and helpless in a difficult situation and be completely out of control in any way. You completely have no control to fix the situation. It's quite another to be like Jesus in the garden 
and be suffering and have all the control in the world to fix that suffering and not call upon that help. But he had help at his disposal, at least 72,000 angels. We don't know how many angels exist. The Bible doesn't give us that answer, that number. But we do know, based on Revelation 12, verse 4, that Satan took with him a third of the angels when he fell. So if we're just going to use the number 72,000 angels that Jesus has at his disposal, and that would be two-thirds, right, because Satan took a third of the angels, then we would have at least 36,000 angels that Satan would have at his disposal. Demons, we call them. They're just fallen angels. There's 108,000 a third of them would be 36,000 and two-thirds would be 72,000. So, with that number in mind, 36,000 demons all at Satan's disposal. This is the hour of the power of darkness. Why the change in tactic from I want to get Jesus to not go to the cross to now I'm going to indwell Jesus or I'm going to indwell Judas to go to get Jesus on the cross. Why this shift. Satan knew that he had lost the battle in trying to get Jesus away from the cross. He knew that he had lost. So now he's going to tempt him in a different way. He's going to try and get Jesus to go to the cross and make the cross so unbearable for Jesus that Jesus will give up and cry out to the Father and say, give me those angels, I quit. In essence, It's as if Satan is saying to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sure, you've made it this far, you've withstood all of my temptations, but they were all limited, and you know that, Jesus. But now your Father has granted me this hour, this moment. I can do whatever I want to you unrestricted. And you see that cross before you, Jesus? I bet you that I can bring such affliction, such agony, such torment that you will stop me long before my authority and my hour is up. Before I'm done with you, you're going to call on those angels. I have my angels too. Usually I use them throughout the world and they're all over the place. But today, mark my words, Jesus, I've called every last one of them here at Calvary to attack you. They will serve me in tormenting you. Every demon, every spiritual force of darkness will be directed at you. Yeah, you've been able to beat me before, but I've never done anything like this to you. I had my way with Adam, caused him to fall. I tempted Abraham and he fell. I tempted David. He's a mighty man of God who is a man after your own heart. And he's fallen. And you're going to fall too, Jesus. I'm going to get you to fail. You're going to cry out for your angels to minister to you, to rise up and defend you. You will lose, I will win, and I will possess the earth and all that is in it forever. That's why the shift happened. Satan said, I couldn't get him to stay away from the cross, but now I'm going to make the cross so unbearable that he's going to quit on the cross. He's going to quit. So while Satan's no longer trying to get Jesus not to go to the cross, he's still trying to get Jesus, still trying to stop Jesus from finishing his mission. If he can get Jesus on the cross and then have Jesus cry out, Father, save me, send the angels now, Satan will win. All that he had to do was get Jesus to resign before he finished his course. 
and he is attacking Jesus at a moment where Jesus is exhausted. He's been up for multiple nights at this point. He's alone from all of his friends. And Satan says, this is the time. This is my hour. What should we do with this shift? I think the lesson from this shift is very simply, we who have suffered, and all of us have suffered from one degree to another, we've never suffered like this. We've never suffered like Jesus. No one has ever or ever will suffer like Jesus. So we see the shift from the religious leaders. We see the shift from the devil. Now let's look just briefly at Jesus' shift. This is the Savior's petition. There's a shift that takes place in Jesus' life. And I want you to start in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus is teaching. And in verse 23, as he is teaching, he says this. The hour has come, this is John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a statement of my, my impending death is here. And then he says this, verse 24, he's going to speak to himself. He's going to preach truth to himself. Why am I going to the cross? Well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. I don't want to go to the cross, but if I go to the cross, then I know it's going to bear much fruit. If I die, it's going to bring much fruit. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life, in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, he has spoken of his death. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week. He will be dying at 3 o'clock on Friday of the Passion Week. And on Tuesday of the Passion Week, as he even begins to think about this moment, he can't keep talking to his disciples. He's speaking to them, saying the truth about this moment, and then he stops. Verse 27, he, he begins this Shakespearean soliloquy, right? Just breaking out. I'm not talking to anybody anymore. I'm just going to start talking in a monologue. It's just me talking to the air and talking to myself. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. He's staring at the impending death and he becomes troubled in his soul. But as he becomes troubled, listen to his words. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And the answer is no. I would never pray that because it's for this hour that I even came. The purpose for me showing up is for this hour. So would I, in an hour, in a moment of trouble of spirit and of heart and of soul, would I say, Father, please take me away. Save me from this hour. He just turns right around and says, I would never pray that because it's for this hour that I am here. And then he says this, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Man, if we could get to the place where in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we could say this. Father, I don't like where I am right now, but glorify your name. Let it be so. Glorify your name. And the Father breaks protocol here. The crowd of people hear it, 
they're, they're surrounding him, and he says, Father, glorify your name. And middle of verse 28, a voice comes out of heaven, breaks into human history. This is the Father speaking. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Son, you glorify me, and I know you're going to glorify me at the cross. And that's enough. I, I believe Jesus takes that with him. Through Wednesday, through Thursday, and through Friday, he takes that statement, I have glorified it, I was glorified by you, and I will glorify myself through you. He takes that statement with him. This is what Jesus takes with him to the cross. But here is the shift. Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus says, I would never pray, save me from this hour. And then we get to Thursday of the Passion Week, and you know the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14. Three times Jesus says, Father, can you save me from this hour? What a dramatic shift from Tuesday saying, I wouldn't say that. Not that saying that is sinful in and of itself. It's a great petition. Is there any other way? But he says on Tuesday, I'm not even going to say those words. There's no reason to. This is why I'm here. And then on Thursday night, three times, he's going to pray those very words. Is there any other way? Save me from this hour. Why? Why the shift? Why what Jesus refuses to pray on Tuesday night, he's going to pray with a fervent heart for three times on Thursday night. Why? It's because of the reality of the death that he's about to die, and not physically. What does it take for God to fix physical death? How hard is that for God? It's Jesus saying, Lazarus, get out, come forth. It's not a hard thing for God to fix physical death. What does it take for God to fix spiritual death? It takes Jesus being slaughtered on a cross for God to fix spiritual death. And that's what Jesus is so terrified of. Being slaughtered on a cross, not physically, but spiritually. Not only is he going to have the hour of the power of darkness with Satan and all of his demons just tormenting Jesus, which I believe happened from the garden all the way through until noon on Friday. So through the trials, through the beatings, through the scourgings, all the way through until darkness hits on Friday. The first three hours of the cross, Jesus is nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning, and for the first three hours, he's hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, and all of the evil forces of darkness are throwing themselves at him. And then at noon, they see darkness creep in. They know that's the Father's presence coming here, that he is going to administer judgment. And as they see that, I wonder what they would have thought. They have, they're fleeing away. Their hour is over, and now it's God's hour. And I wonder if they thought, I wonder if Satan thought, I think the Father's going to come save his son. We've done enough, and I think the Father's going to step in and save his son. What a twist for Satan to watch his father, Jesus' father, do more to torment his son than Satan himself could ever do. And he just watched, realizing, I have lost I have lost. Jesus says no on Tuesday and then prays three times. Is there any other way? But we need to finish the story out. John chapter 18, verse 11. After Simon Peter cuts off, draws the sword and cuts off the high priest's ear, 
the high priest's slave's ear. His name was Malchus. Jesus says to Peter, verse 11, and I want you to take these words with you this morning. On Tuesday, he said, I would never even ask for God to take this cup away from me. On Thursday night, he asks three times, is there any other way? And then he gets up, resolved to go to the cross, and says to Peter in verse 11, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? He's resolved. He made his request. He petitioned God the Father. Is there any other way? There was no response from heaven. And Jesus says, your will be done, not mine. And he's resolved to obey the Father. And he says to Peter, I'm drinking the cup. I'm drinking the cup. John Flavel, a Puritan author, speaks of the interchange between God the Father and God the Son. And I believe it would happen right here. The Father speaks and says, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now they lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son responds, Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them, then rather they should perish eternally. I shall be responsible for them as their surety. I, father, will be responsible for them. So, father, bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that after there may be no reckonings with them. After my hand, at my hand thou shalt require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath due them than that they should suffer it themselves. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father says, My son, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Son, expect no abatements. And then this line, if I spare them, I will not spare you. And I think that's what the son is hearing in the garden. If I'm to spare them, I will not spare you. And he's saying, is there any other way? We can both be spared. And Jesus gets up on Thursday night in the garden and he says this, content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me, for I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all my riches and empty all of my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. For Jesus, Gethsemane had settled the issue. The time for asking was over. The time for the the drinking of the cup of the Father's wrath had begun. Father, we are undone by the Savior's love. Charge it to my account, he says. And he wrestles in the garden. Is there any other way? He prays three times what he said he never would pray on Tuesday night. But then he gets up and he says, contented, charge it all to my account. 
I am able to discharge what they owe. And though we've seen this morning just a little bit of what the cup meant for Jesus, just a tiny view of what the cup meant for him, we will see even more on Friday as we study the depths of this cup. We will see what it truly meant for him to bear away our sins. But even just the glimpse that we've received this morning of the torment of the the devil, the relinquishing of the relationship with the Father, we stand in awe and wonder at your amazing love for us.